My name is Pamela and I'm a volunteer here at One Hope and I'm in one of those missions that is reaching into the community. I work at the One Hope Community Care and I'm in their mentor program over there and it's been a wonderful um, opportunity for me. I've been over there for about six months now. Well, at the end of last year, as a lot of news articles come up, it's the greatest of this and what happened in 2023, I saw an article that caught my eye and it was the Merriam-Webster's Word of the Year, and I thought, oh, this could be interesting. So I opened it up, and the Word of the Year is authentic. And I thought, oh, okay. Well, you know, through the year, we've heard a lot about AI, artificial intelligence, and all this sort of thing, and they were sort of saying in the article, it was, you know, probably because there was so much conversation in that in the, in the world in 2023, that people were looking to see, how do you define authenticity? And something that caught my eye in the article was this phrase, and I hope this isn't a known phrase, but tell me if it is, the authenticity as artifice. Do we know this phrase? What it means, and it's probably in a lot of the socials, although I'm not into that sort of world, but it means authenticity as a performance, as a deceit. And I think if you are somebody that has trolled or whatever a little bit, you. You do get this sense sometimes that is that really who they are? And it's because of the likes probably and because they're pushing whatever they're pushing on their particular um, page. But I thought, wow, you know, that's not my frame of reference at all. The artificial world, things that are man-made. What man is drumming up is what's authentic. We have the life of Jesus. And Jesus was not only lived authentically, he was authentic. In John 3:16, it says, and God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but live eternal life. His one and only, there's no confusion there. They could have said the only son, but the one and only. So there is only one true son of God. There may be others that think or others that will come that might say, but there is only one true son of God. In his being, who he is, his identity, he is authentic. He's the real deal. And he also lived authentically. And I looked it up like everybody else probably did for that Merriam-Webster poll because the poll was, it, it was the word of the year solely because of how many lookups it got. It wasn't anything else. So I looked it up, added one more number to that one. And to live authentically means to live according to your values and beliefs. That's the definition. But in amongst that, there are characteristics of people that live authentically. And they are things like honesty, with consistency. Things like vulnerability. And I think that's tied to the fact that people that live authentically are not living for the fear of man, whether man's approving of what they're doing or saying or whether man's not approving of what they're doing or saying. And I'll tell you, when we read the Gospels and we look at the life of Jesus, he did that in spades. He spoke the truth, and a lot of people didn't like it, but he lived authentically because this is the thing. Jesus never misrepresented who he claimed to be. And he claimed some big things about his life. And if you haven't made a resolution this year, I'll throw this one out to you. 
You can study the seven I am statements in John, and I'm sure many people have done that. There are seven I am statements in the book of John, which is in the New Testament. It's John writing the life of Jesus. And in these statements, Jesus makes some amazing claims about who he is. And he knows that the people that are listening hear those first words, I am. And he knows that they are referring that back to something that was said long ago in the book of Exodus. We won't go there, but I'll paraphrase the story. God has a conversation with this man named Moses, and he tells Moses, Moses, you're gonna go up against Pharaoh, who was extremely powerful in this history of the world, and you're gonna tell him that my people are enslaved and you're gonna get them out of here. And Moses is probably a little, little unsure, maybe there's a big task, and he's basically not sure he can do it, and he's unsure of himself, and he puts all these things to God with his questions, and he says, if the people ask, what is your name? Who, who has sent me? What is your name? This is what God says to him. I am who I am. And that is what they call the present continuous. So I am in the time of Moses, 1500 years ago, I am today and I am in the future. Always present in any time zone, I am. And when, he, when Jesus was saying, I am this, I am the door, and there's seven of them, I am um, <laughs> the light of the world, I am the vine, I am the way, the truth, and the life. When he used that term, I am, he knew that those people were taking it right back. That's what God called himself. And so Jesus, in his ministry, it's a big statement. So you, if you're gonna if you're gonna make those sort of claims, you better have something to back it up. And so, of course, we know in his three and a bit years of ministry, he taught the people, and he performed miracles which pointed to his identity, and he shared his life, and he got his group of twelve, his special inner circle, and he started preparing them for the ministry that they were gonna have to have because he wasn't gonna stay, he was gonna do his thing, the thing that the Father had sent him to do, and then he was going to go, and they were gonna have to continue on in the work, starting and building the church. And so he had to prepare them. And he taught in a way that um, amazed the people. People marveled at Jesus. I mean, amazingly, just to see the miracles would be one thing, but he spoke, and in the Word it says, he spoke with authority that the people could sense there's something different about this guy. And they actually contrasted it to the religious leaders of the day, which I'm sure made them really happy. <laughs> so he spoke and he taught. And he, he, in a way, he caused division. He caused a division amongst the people. And because, you know, Jesus was presenting a God that was different than the God that they were, not different than the God, how do I put this? At the time, it was a very religious sort of way to approach God. You know, they had built, in, in a term they call it the fence laws, but what had happened is God had said certain things way back here with Moses and said, this is, these, are the, these are the ways that I want you to live. But they were general sort of, things, but the people understood the, the feeling 
and the thought behind those words. And, and say we say the Ten Commandments. There were ten, ten words, and the people understood what God meant, the flavor of what those words meant. But you see, over time and over time, people thought, for instance, you know, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day is a day of rest. It's holy to the Lord. So in the time, the people understood that. They were building the tabernacle. Okay, we can, we can work and build the church for six days, but then we have to take a rest because God wants us to focus solely on him. It's not about what we're doing in the world. He wants us to take a break and just be in his presence and be with our people and enjoy the day and have a rest and be refreshed. That was all part of being a healthy person, spiritually and physically. But, you know, in time, you know, God said, don't work. But what does that mean? Oh, we don't know what that means. So we better make a little, just a little bit of a, a, a law about that. And I don't understand what that means now, 100 years later. We better make a few more laws just to, just to push that in and to, to frame it. And so at the time that Jesus was speaking to these people, and, it, and I don't say this as an offense or for anything, but work was considered if you spat, you couldn't spit on the ground on a Sunday. Because if you spat on the ground and the dirt moved, that was plowing. All right, it does sound, it does sound silly to us, but this is what it had become. If you, you couldn't swat a fly on the Sabbath, because if you flotted, swatted a fly, that was considered hunting. You see how it got so micromanaged in a way. They, they were so worried and fearful that they would break the law that was originally given, fearful that they built all these other laws to, to make sure that they didn't make any mistakes. And you can see how when Jesus um, says, come to me who are weary, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult, distant, I would say joyless way to have fellowship with the Lord afraid that you're gonna make a mistake. But God, you know, Je Jesus was coming and he was showing them something different. He was teaching in a way that the people felt God was accessible and approachable, that he was a God of love and a God of care and a God of kindness. And they were, you know, God, you know Jesus was speaking to their hearts and they were getting it. They were feeling that sense that this is different. It was with authority because it felt different, it seemed different, it seemed, I would say if it was me, it seemed more in line with what God wanted for their lives. A peaceful, beautiful, joyful fellowship with him. Not focusing on these rules, these extra rules, I should say, because the Ten Commandments were the written rules, the written laws that God had given, but all of these, they call them in the Gospels, oral laws and traditions of men were all almost pumped up and had more weight than the written word of God. And this was the problem, and this was always the time that um, Jesus had struggles with the Pharisees, because this is what the people knew, this is how they taught the people, this is what was important to the people, this is how you approach God, and now you have Jesus coming in and saying, hang on a minute. Blessed are the poor in heart. You know, comes in with the Beatitudes. Be salt and light in the world. You know, build your house on the, on the proper foundation. It, you know, just all of these sort of lovely pictures of things that the people could grasp and understand and start to build their lives on those sorts of things that Jesus was saying. And of course, that wasn't what they were used to. And that caused division. 
And the people that really loved Jesus, there were some that were crazy about him. They thought, this guy is fantastic. We're going to make him king. Let's get him in there. It'll be like another Moses. Moses was to take the people out of Egypt and bring them to the promised land across the wilderness. This guy is just like him. He's raising everybody up. He can do the same. He will take us out of this bondage from Rome. And they tried to make him king. And he had to escape them because that's not what he was sent for. They tried to make him king. But there was other people that were trying to grab him in amongst all of his conversations. They weren't trying to make him king. They were trying to get rid of him because this guy's a troublemaker and he's, he's stirring and, and he's disrupting the status quo. <laughs> Jesus was, in a way, wanting to disturb the status quo because he was bringing something new. He was bringing something that was really explaining what God required of the people in order to have fellowship with them. So, from a joyless, maybe burdensome type of checklist religion, Jesus comes in and tries to show them a different way. And that's why, you know, like I was saying, study the word, that's why he's the door. He's the door to something different. He's the door to understanding everything that he did on the cross and made the way that separation of sin. He made the way. You can walk through the door of Jesus and on the other side, you have fellowship and intimacy and closeness with the Lord. It's not about following rules. It's about understanding who God is and what God really requires, which is mercy and love and justice and peace and righteousness. I've completely gone off my notes. I mean, like, completely. I have nowhere to go here. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. I told myself I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> so we, we look at John 3.16. We looked at that earlier. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Now, this is the thing that I love about this verse. God so loved that he gave the son. God, his motive was love, and he gave the son. And I believe, and I think it is equally true, that the son, because he loved, was willing to be given. See, there was that connection, that was that unity in purpose, unity in plan, unity in what was going to happen. Jesus knew when he came to the earth, it was going to lead to the cross. He knew all about what was going to be required of him. He, he knew how the people, in some ways, he knew that the people were going to have some response to what he was bringing. But he knew it was going to go to the cross. But yet, he had to be who he was. He was the son that was sent for a purpose. And he lived that out in his life, the way that he taught, the miracles his friends, preparing for the future when he was going to leave, doing everything that the Father required. And Jesus lived a sinless life, the Bible says. He lived sinless life. And so if, if he lived a sinless life in all ways, he never sinned in all ways, and the book of Hebrews, which is in the New Testament, it says that he was tempted in every way, so it's not like he lived a sinless life because he kept himself in a bubble and he didn't listen to things or have, you know, and we even looked at that a few weeks ago or whenever it was about Jesus being brought into the wilderness to be tempted, to be tried. And he lived a sinless life and he was tempted. So that meant everything about him 
was sinless. So when he went to the cross, everything about him was perfect because he had to be the perfect lamb without spot or blemish. So that meant his thoughts were perfect. Everything, every day. His, spot, his thoughts were perfect. His mindset, his motive, his actions, his attributes, his attitude, his deeds, everything about him was in line with the Father's will. Everything. Which is pretty amazing, really, considering what came up against him when he was trying to do the thing that the Father had sent him to do, and the opposition that he received while he was trying to do the thing that the Father had sent him to do. Always perfect attitude. Always perfect in the way he thought about the people always perfect in his love walk. And he did everything with this humility and this willingness to serve because that's who he is. He's living out who he is in the perfect way. For us as an example, I mean, we can't be perfect, but he gives us a way to try to, as Steve was saying, walk it out with him, walk it out. Let's just look at a couple of scriptures. And the first one is from the book of John, and it's verses 12, uh, John chapter 12, and verses 49 and 50. I don't know if it's up there, but I'll do it. Verse 49, chapter 12 of the book of John. I don't speak on my own authority. This is Jesus speaking. I don't speak on my own authority. The Father who sent me has commanded me what to say and how to say it. And I know his commands lead to eternal life. So I say whatever the Father tells me to say. Constant communion with the Father. Now, I don't... I don't think this means every single tiny word, but I think in the moments when Jesus was ministering, in the moments when Jesus was meeting with people, in the moments when he was teaching the people, he was in constant communion with the Father, checking, hearing, making sure everything was within the Father's will, everything was within the Father's um, ways. No contradictions. And everything that he said was trying to reveal who he was so that the people could understand what he was going to do on the cross so when they believed it, they would have eternal life. That was the goal. Jesus came to make a way. He was the door is what I said before, but there's other ways that they explain that in the, in the word so that we would have eternal life. Everything that, everything that Jesus shared was in communion with the Father, sinlessly presented. And let's take a look at John 5. This is the other scripture, verses 19 and 20. I'm not even sure if they're going up there, but whatever. Are they going up there? Oh, they are, okay. 19 and 20. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth. The Son can do nothing by himself. Oof. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves 
the Son and shows him everything he is doing. In fact, the Father will show him how to do even greater works than healing this man. And that was a, um, oh, sorry, I was reading from the Bible and I had it over here. But you got the gist of it. The Father only does what he sees the Father, what the Son only does what he sees the Father doing. So in those moments while Jesus was doing and being and sharing, he's hearing and seeing and knowing that God, that his Father is involved in that too. He's not looking at his Father doing it, not see the, what the Father's doing, but he's sensing what, what the Father is wanting to do in that moment. And he's only doing what he senses he sees the Father is doing in that moment. And you know, when I got a hold of that word, it was, a, it was quite a while ago, and I started to say something in my heart when I would go into meetings or I would go to places. I would always stop before I walked through the door and I would say, Lord, show me what you're doing. Show me what you're doing, Lord, because I want to be cooperating and participating in what you're doing and not just busy with what I think is all good and happening here. I want to be in sync with what you're doing, Lord, because you have things for us to do and we want to do them your way. We want to do them the way you would want them to be done, in your will. But we have to be mindful that God is always talking and is always doing. And Claudia said that, and I, sort of, I laughed when she said that in between the songs. And it's so true. He's always doing and always talking, and we can be part of what he's doing, but we have to be aware that he is always talking and he is always doing. We have to have that heightened awareness and I think that's what that was doing for me. I'd have this heightened awareness that so when I went in, I would be waiting and watching and seeing and expecting that God was doing things. And I'm not talking about, you know, necessarily, you know, ministry things, just having a chat with somebody, noticing what's coming at me, asking the Father while it's happening, what are you doing, Lord? What do I say here? How can I, how can I bring words of life that you've put into me that I know are real because I'm living them? How can I share that, Lord? How can I spread that? How can I show something to this person that they might not know and need to know because it's going to be good for their life? The Father is always doing and saying, and Jesus was listening, there was that unity in purpose, unity in plan, unity in thought life, in attitude, and, and all of that stuff that is like the inner man stuff, isn't it? It works out, but it's the inner man sort of things. You know, right before Jesus went to the cross, he knew he was going. He knew he was going to be betrayed. And, and I always say this, too. You know, Jesus was in control of the whole situation. Do we believe that? Do we know that? Jesus was in control of everything that was going on. He knew he was going to be betrayed. He could have left, but he, he didn't. He went to the secluded place where they could get him. He knew that's what they needed. They didn't want to drag him in front of all the people because it would have started a riot. He was so popular. They knew they needed a quiet place. And he went as usual, knowing that they were going to come and find him there and knowing it was the perfect opportunity. And he actually told Judas before he even did it. He knew it. He knew it was in his heart already. 
So he was in control of the situation. And I would never want you to th anybody to think that Jesus was captured against his will and he was tricked and forced. He was completely in control of what was going on. And what he was doing was walking it out because that's what his father had told him was necessary. And that's what he was sent for. And that's what he was willing to do, walk it out. And before he goes to the cross, and all right, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going there. Before he goes to the cross, he tells his disciples, it's good that I go. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to go to the grave. I am going to raise, be, I'm going to raise from the dead. That's not the right word. I'm going to be resurrected and I'm going to go back up to my father. And it's good that I go because once I go, then the spirit can be sent. The Holy Spirit can be sent and it can indwell you. It will be with you always because Jesus knew he was only going to be there with them for three and a half years or whatever in the ministry time but the Holy Spirit would be with you always, the spirit of truth. And we're going to look at John 16, verse 3. I'll read it from here. <laughs> Sorry, I'm green at this. I'm new at this. <laughs> John 16, 3. Uh... This is because, oh, wait a minute. Oh, 1613, sorry. In a little while, oh, come on. Where am I? Is it on the screen? That's better. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. <laughs> Look at the connection here. It's, it's amazing. He will not speak on an oath. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. So now we have the Spirit of God within us, and He's only teaching us and telling us and instructing us what He hears. It's the same dynamic. We have that within us, 24-7 accessibility to God and His mind and his ways, because in another place it says, this is 1 Corinthians 2.11, for who knows the person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. We can know what God is thinking because the spirit is within us and he will teach us and he will help us to understand. That's one of the roles of the spirit. He searches the deep things of God that are found in his word and he makes them, and he explains them to us in a way that we can understand God's plan and God's ways and God's promises. They're all in there for us to study and to look at and to learn from and to be shaped by. But we don't get it all when we first surrender. We surrender our lives to God and the Spirit comes. That's guaranteed. That's not for the few. That's for everybody. If you don't think that you, well, everybody is accepted. So everybody is worthy to have the Spirit of God within them. And it's guaranteed once you say that Jesus is Lord. Once you believe what Jesus did on the cross, you have the Spirit. You can be aware of the Spirit, 
awareness is a good thing. If you are aware that he's in there, if you're aware that he will speak to you, if you're aware that he desires to help you in your life, he's the helper. And he searches the deep things of God and he helps to explain them. And the other thing, he's always with us and he's teaching us and he's guiding us and he's instructing us and he's bringing correction also. But we can draw from the grace of God and the mercy of God as we hear the things as the spirit is trying to shape us. And, you know, <laughs> I've had moments in my life where God has literally pierced the heart of something in me. It was something that I needed to know because he, he, was, he knew that I was ready to receive it because it was soaked in love. But that thing cut me to the core when God showed me something about my life. But you know what? The sword of the spirit is so sharp, it goes right to the heart of it, and it doesn't cause any damage on the way in. It just goes right to the core of what it is, and you hear it, and you know it's God, because it's truth. And the spirit can help us when we pray, and he can help us with giving us insights into the inner man, looking at our motives, looking at our thought life, our attitudes, our mindsets, teaching us how to love the way that Jesus loved, giving us a desire to serve with humility, giving us a desire to serve with humility. He brings new things. It's not a, it's not a reno. God's not giving us a renovation of the old stuff. He's got to start from the foundation up, bringing new things. Shaping, shaping, shaping. And it's about walking it out. I mean, we have to be willing. It's not about striving. It's not about work. It's not about a prescribed lift. You should, you know, be this, be that, do this, stop doing that, be here, don't hang around there. It's not like that. It's simply listening to what God is telling you personally and responding to what God is saying to you personally. And this is the thing, he knows how to get to us. He reveals because he wants to be known and he knows us, he knows our personalities, he knows our quirks, he knows the way that we tick, tick, tick. He knows how we can get it. He knows us and he knows how to speak to us in a way that we will get it so that there can be release and freshness and freedom and joy, all the things that God wants us to have in fellowship with him. And as we do, we learn more about who he is and we learn about more about who we are. And we grow in that understanding of what pleases God. We know him more, so we know what, we grow to know what pleases him. And we grow, no. <laughs> we grow, oh God, I can't even say that. How did I write <laughs> We grow to know what pleases God, and we grow to love what God loves. It's really, that's what it is. It's understanding what God loves, and then working, not working, moving in that, expressing that, welcoming that into our lives. It's not about striving. It's a work of God. We can't do it. I can try to change all my habits and look good on the outside, then I could start a social media site maybe. 
You see, but that's what it is. We can, we can look good on the outside, but God works on the inside because the thing is, you need a shift in the inside for it to come out in the outside in an authentic way. Something has to shift. And that's what God does. He puts his finger on little things. And this is how the Holy Spirit works. And we know that it's him. He tells us something, and it might be hard to hear, but we know that it's him. And he shows us something new about our life or, or things that are happening in our life, and we know that it's him. And we read the Bible and we think, what does that mean? And then after we think about it and pray about it and, you know, search a little bit more, all of a sudden you get an aha moment, and we know that it's him because he wants us to know him. He wants to be known. And he gives us everything that we need to know him. We can pray, we can read his word, we have the spirit of God within us, we have each other, we have the church. Everything that is needed is left for us so that we can explore who God is. Philippians 1, 6, 9 says this. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. You see, it's not about what we do. God started this work when he opened the way and we walked through and we had the Spirit of God in us. God began the work and now the Holy Spirit is continuing with the work within us until the day of Christ. That's a day in the future. That's a day in the future when everything, because we're not perfect, everything in us, even things that we did, that, and I hate to say this, but things that we did that were really great but had a stinking motive, everything that is in us that is not, cannot be in the presence of God's holiness will be refined. It will be perfected then. And that's in the future. And that's a promise of God that we can read in his word. We can understand that that's part of the plan that we will be perfected in him. Let's get the music team up. I'm just gonna finish with this little picture. And I'm only doing this because I know that sometimes people learn because pictures are, are an easier way for them to get it. And this isn't a foolproof thing, but it is, it is a little thought that I had and I thought it might be helpful. So I got this little picture and it was a picture of a string <laughs> on the road, sort of, I guess. And, you know, we're walking along in our life and we don't recognize or realize that the string is there. But then one day we happen to notice that there's a string there and we pick it up. And when we pick it up, we sense that there is a tension on the string because the string is connected to something, actually connected to someone. And if we hang on to the string and start to walk, we can walk and listen and we're getting, we're walking along on the string. The string is guiding us where we need to go. It's leading to a person. It's leading to a, you know, image of God, the, the example of Jesus, however that works for you in this image. It's leading to a person. And as we get closer, like anything, when you get closer to it, it looks bigger. And as we get closer and closer to the heart of God, we understand His awesomeness. 
We understand the majesty of God. He is a huge God. He is a God from the beginning to the end of history. He's massive, He's huge. And we get a sense of that as we get closer and closer to God. And it allows us to see, not in a bad way, how small we are before Him. Because this is the thing, He's left the string so that we can get close. He wants us to be close. He knows it, who He is, but He's inviting us, get closer, walk closer to me, listen to what I'm saying, follow the string. And then you will understand what kind of a God you serve. It's about connectedness, isn't it? And it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You could have been a Christian from last week. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. Time is not the issue. The issue is how willing are we to be molded and how pliable are we in the Father's, in God's hands? How pliable are we? How willing are we to be shaped? And we don't have to beat ourselves up when we get it wrong because God is a God who forgives. Just keep holding on to the string. Because you know what? He's seeing the inner man. He's seeing your desire to keep walking. And He wants to strengthen those next steps. So when we make a mistake, we don't have to beat ourselves up. God says, keep walking. I'm still with you. I'm still with you. I can be your strength. I will be your help. I will be your comfort. I'm still with you. Keep moving towards me. He sees the inner parts. And you know, when I say this to people, I always say the same thing. God is not watching you. He is seeing you. He is seeing your life. How teachable are you? How teachable am I? Are we pliable in God's hands? Does yielding come easy? You know, the word resolute from resolutions, it means determined, unflinching, unwavering. So when we make these resolutions at the start of the year, if you make them, that's what you're committing to. And this is what I've committed to. I'm gonna be resolute that I am gonna be aware of God in my life and the voice that He brings into my life. I'm gonna raise my awareness. I've talked to God about this. He showed me something, I'm not gonna share it because it's gonna take too long, but He showed me something. And now I say, show me what you're doing. This is what I say for this year. Lord, bring your rule into my life. Be my Lord in my life. Show me the things that you wanna show me because I am listening. I am listening. I'm gonna be aware that you're speaking to me, Lord, because I wanna be shaped for your purposes and for your glory, for your glory. Can I do one more thing, Steve? Is it okay? <laughs> yeah.
You know, there's, there's a little thing in Galatians um, 5, verse 22. It's called the fruits of the Spirit. These are the sort of things that God brings by His Spirit. And I just want you to close your eyes and I'm gonna read the list and you probably know it, many of you probably do, but if you don't, or even if you do, close your eyes. I'm telling you to close your eyes and think about it. <laughs> and what I want you to do, and this is just a practical thing, because I'm a very practical person. As I read the list, think about the list. Think about if that's you, or is that something that God might want to show you something more about for your life? And it's not correction necessarily. You just might need to know something more about this for your life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Peace. Joy. Patience. Kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Father, as we think about these words that have just been read, Lord, if there's anybody in here that you are speaking to in some way, I pray that you would seal that on their hearts, Lord. You would help them to know that this is you speaking to them about that thing. And Lord, I pray that you would continue to walk alongside as we grow in these things, as we lay aside our agendas and submit ourselves to you, surrender ourselves to you, Lord, because we want to be growing in the image of Jesus Christ. He is the real deal. He is the goal. And we thank you, Lord, that we don't do it in our own strength and we don't do it alone. You are with us in the journey. Help us, Lord, to receive what you say let it seed inside of us, Lord. Let it embed inside of us so that it can have its way. Let it have its way, Lord. Change us on the inside. And I thank you, Lord, that you are a faithful God. If you've said something, your power is behind it. In Jesus' name, amen.